Morning, church. You please would open to Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> As Ed mentioned, uh, and this morning's message actually ha- is very appropriate in our considering of just all that has taken place over the last 49 plus years. Um, and we're referring to the Supreme Court ruling to overturn the Roe versus Wade, and uh, there was another sub ruling at the same time uh, with the, with Doe, and both of those rulings were overturned. And that back in 1973, just a little history lesson. In 1973, when that judgment came down, the church was not prepared for it. The evangelical church was not prepared for it because they didn't realize the new step that the progressive movement in this country had toward looking toward the courts rather than legislature, the legislature to enact rules and laws in the country. And so the church found itself saying, what's up with this? Do you know, it wasn't until, uh, and, and the abortion question wasn't widely agreed upon, even within the church. Southern Baptist Convention didn't condemn abortion until 1980. So people didn't know what they thought because it caught everybody off guard. Uh, The Catholic Church, they weren't caught off guard. They're the ones that said, this is wrong. And they're the first ones that said it's wrong. And we're grateful. Because they were a light, a voice of wisdom and a voice of truth in the midst of darkness that came over the earth. And the United States has had... Um, one of the most liberal policies regarding the unborn in the world. We rank up there with North Korea and all the countries that we would repudiate as those that uh, take away people's rights rather than fight for their rights. And so we, it was a momentous day on Friday, and it's worth celebrating because that's a lot of prayer. I think of, I think of all of those who are praying for that decision and died, not to see it, but thankfully in glory, they're seeing it. But like I said a few weeks ago, what we celebrate with the decision, now we have to be aware of a collision that awaits And now is the time for the church to begin to not take cues from the culture on how to love people, but to set an example of how to love people. There should not be a haughty response. Yeah, finally got them. No. Because listen, here's what I think the church has been wrong. Conservatives have been wrong. Uh, Progressive liberals have been wrong because they have ignored a baby. I think a lot of times conservatives, evangelical conservatives, have ignored a mother. We've got to see both. Because now, church, now is the time. Because the, the, a decision on Friday doesn't rid women of not wanting a pregnancy and wondering what to do with their pregnancy. That doesn't go away. A law does not change a conscience. A law does not change and soften a hard heart. We have to be there for the moms. Amen? We have to be there for those moms now. 
the church of Jesus Christ needs to be there. So now, everybody should feel, what's going to be my role? What's going to be my response? Because now the Crisis Pregnancy Center over on 4th Avenue over there, they need our help now more than ever. They need people to sit in their office and take phone calls or take walk-ins with people who say, I have no idea what to do right now. They need counselors to walk, not just with the moms, but with the dads who don't know what to do. There's opportunity for the gospel. What I am so grateful for in this church is how we already, even in, in our small size, we already have an exponential mark in the community through adoption, through fostering and through adoption. So I applaud you. You know, Somebody's asking, what is your church doing? We've been doing it. We've been fostering. We've been celebrating adoption as those that would stand up and say, you don't want that child? I do. I do as a representation and a, 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 a wonderful response of God doing the same thing to us. So everybody should be asking, what should I do? How should I respond? This week we celebrate with our Englert family. Sean and Tiffany received home Ezra Harris Englert. On was last Sunday during church, they were signing the papers to bring him home. He was born on June 5th. He was received to his family last Sunday. Isn't that awesome? It's glorious. That's, that's where the church needs to be. Everybody plays a part. Even in foster care ministry, there's something called respite care. That you can get qualified to assist a family who has foster children. You can be there to say, I'll give you a break. Even if it's for three or four hours. I'll give you a break so you can have, you can just re- you take a nap. Go out to dinner with your spouse. I'll help few weeks ago, about a month now, we, had, uh, we celebrated foster care appreciation by hosting a, uh, a lunch here. And there's, uh, I was so blessed to see so many parents who open their home and say, I'll take them in but I have been I have been beyond blessed and I have been humbled by Penny and Monica's response to this need. Years ago, Penny and Monica sitting in my office right there. Their marriage was in shambles. So we were meeting consistently. Working and just sowing a vision of what God wanted for their marriage. And we began to see fruitfulness. And they began to see their love for one another flourish. And it was a beautiful thing. But the subject of children came up. They just had a hard time. Couldn't get pregnant. So I said, easy for me to say, have you thought about fostering? They had. They just didn't realize the extent that each other had been thinking about it. And now how many babies have y'all had? 
<laughs> Over 30, right? What? A glory. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you. We are doing something, thankfully, as a church to meet a great need. But the, the need has grown. And there is a need for us to be available, to be willing, and to step in with a gospel light and love. You know, I am, I am so tired of the church taking its cues on how to love from the culture. We've, it's time for us to stand up and set an example for love. It's time for us to do that. And so we find, we find avenues for that. Listen, uh, and what we're going to see today is the reality of spiritual conflict. The abortion issue in this country has been primarily a spiritual conflict because Satan hates babies. He hates them. Remember Pharaoh killing all the babies? He didn't just come up with that thought. Remember Herod trying to kill Jesus? He didn't just come up with that thought. Satan was behind that. And there are, there are spiritual realities that are influencing our physical lives. And what that should do for us is understand first where our battle really is. Listen, our battle is not with the people that we see. It's not. Our battle is not with the people that we interact with. Ephesians 6 tells us that. It's in your notes. Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's exactly what John sees in Revelation verse 12. It's exactly what he's looking at. He's looking at, there's a battle that's way beyond anything that we understand. Mostly, we just don't see it. We don't see it. But the church has a role in that conflict. So there's something happening in the spirit realm that, that affects our lives today. But listen, our obedience, our faith, our reigning with Christ in this life, listen, it affects the heavenlies as well. We, we are living for something way beyond ourselves. And it is trite for us to just pay attention to our little worlds without recognizing that our obedience and our faithful response to the love of God is a comp it's winning battles in the unseen realm. Now, this is, the unseen realm is not to spook us out, nor is it something for us to get preoccupied with. Like, hoo-hoo-hoo. Like seeing, seeing demons around every corner, not the proper response. If you can't find your, your parking spot that you want, that's not spiritual warfare, church. So it's not like, oh, I'm, I'm casting out demons so I can get this parking spot. No. That trivializes things, and we don't want to do that. God gives us enough to understand that there's something there. He doesn't give us so much that it, it's to become our focus. But we're to be aware. We're to be aware that when we have, in, in our homes, all of a sudden something happens and it's like, why 
are your spouse and you're just not communicating effectively? Something's different about your relationship with your children? Like something's going on? It could be. It's just a spiritual attack. And, and Satan is just, he's throwing his, his little baits. Try, get in, in the waters of your home. Just trying to get somebody to bite. Get somebody to bite. We have to be careful. We have to be aware. We have to be on guard. But listen, our on guard is not looking for Satan around every corner. Our on guard is, I look at Jesus, and I trust him, and I live for him. And Satan can't touch me. That's the, that's the truth that we have. All right, I basically just preached the entire message in that little excursus. But there's a whole lot of detail in this chapter. This is where everybody comes to in Revelation to figure out what is going on. (laughs) Just quickly to set us up, we are opening a new window as we look at chapter 12, 13, and 14 in Revelation. The first window was Jesus and his church, the first three chapters. Then we have Jesus on his throne, verses 4 through 11, and that's the uh, as he reigns on his throne, remember who is worthy to open the seals? He opens the seals, and then he, the trumpets blast. And so there's this uh, concurrence of activity that's going on in the world until it, it moves toward the final uh, seal being opened, the final trumpet being blown for Jesus to, to return. But this window, I think it's, it's, a, it's more like an aerial view of what's going on. Like, the, the seals and trumpets have a lot to do with what the, the strife on earth and what's going on on earth. Uh, but these, it's, it's almost as if God says, John, let me, let me show you, like, let me give you an aerial view of what's going on rather than just looking like this, like what is happening around me? You can see what God sees in a way. Now, the, the, he sees signs in this new window and they're spiritual pictures that represent physical realities. And much of what he sees has already taken place. So it's this weird synopsis of history that John is going to see and then record with us. But this is, remember, it's, it's to be an encouragement for the church. We are to be encouraged by what, what God sees and what God is bringing about. Because there are glimpses, glimpses, hmm, glimpses of God's victory, Jesus' victory all along the way. That's a lot of glimpses glimpses. All right, let's, let's listen to God's word. Remember, uh, the beginning, chapter one, it said, uh, blessed are those who read this aloud. So we're, we're being blessed as we listen to this being read aloud. Let's, let's grab onto that. Revelation 12, verse one. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, And on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she bore her children, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He has thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but, but woe to you, <coughs> O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great, given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and, t- and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Lord, we ask that you would please give us clarity, give us understanding, but most of all, God, give us faith, to trust you that our lives would come into line with your great glory. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. My introduction was just all over the place, so I'm catching up. Pardon me. I'll just go right with our main point. Let's move into it. God's people conquer in this life through spiritual, sacrificial lives. Jesus' sacrificial life. We conquer through Jesus' sacrificial life on our behalf. His death, his perfect life, his obedience, his death in our place, and his resurrection. He has conquered. Therefore, we have his life, so we conquer through our obedience and faithful witness. So we conquer through living sacrificial lives. Through Jesus, but we have a place in that. And that's where this uh, combination of spirit realm and physical realm come together. In the first six verses, that first paragraph, we see a cosmic struggle with the woman, the dragon, the male child, and even the wilderness. So the big question is, who are these? What do these represent? Remember, John says they're a sign. He saw a sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun before he's seeing different types of visions. And now he sees a sign, which means it does represent something specific, but there's a few different things it can represent. Uh, Ultimately we see Mary in this, right? The mother of Jesus who uh, we know from Genesis chapter three, that God, he he pronounced a, uh, um, a curse on the serpent saying that, she will, the seed of her will crush, crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. That's already a sign of a struggle in Genesis chapter 3. But as we look more into the Old Testament, this woman actually represents three things. She represents Israel, 
Remember in uh, Genesis 37 when Joseph dreams his dream and he goes to his family and says, I've seen the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to me. And Jacob understood what that meant. Jacob said, are your mother and I and your brothers going to bow down to you? But it also represents that was Israel, God protecting. So as woman, Israel represents a woman as the embodiment of what God would bring about to bring the Messiah. Ultimately, we find that specifically in Mary, she also represents the embodiment of the Messiah coming to his people. But this also represents the church. So we have this three rep, threefold representation before Christ, Christ where it represents Mary, and then after Jesus' ascension, we have the church representing the woman because the church still holds the embodiment of the truth of the gospel. The, the, the world is to come to the church to find out what the truth is. And in verses 13 and 17, I think we see that uh, in greater clarity that the dragon has thrown down the woman who gave birth to the male child, and the woman is given two wings. I think we find something very specific about the church there. But look how she's described. Clothed with the sun, moons at her feet, 12 stars are at her head. The heavens declare the glory of God, amen? There's a constellation called Virgo, virgin, that every so often... When the sun and the moon are around Virgo, the sun is over her shoulder as if it's clothing her, and the moon is at her feet. And there's another constellation over her head. It's made up of 12 stars. It's the constellation Leo, lion. The last time it appeared was in September of 2017 on the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. How about that? Coincidence? I think not. God is declaring his glory. Now, remember back in 2017, there was the whole blood moon thing is because everybody knew that the constellations were going to be in line this exact way. Now, it it's, takes a long time for these to cycle back. And so that was very popular in 2017. Like, okay, this is something unique going on. Remember, that, that's to be aware of. Yes, he's coming back. And when we look at that, we're not to see it as this is the sign that Jesus is returning. No, we see it as another sign that Jesus is on his way. And he is preparing everything. And so as we look even to the stars, as God declares his handiwork and he declares his glory with all of creation, he's telling us something. He's telling us, I got you. I've got you. I'm working my plan. Trust me. The woman, we are told, is in agony of childbirth. And we can see this in Israel's history. As they were pregnant, as they were in the agony of even their own sinfulness. God, how how can we be a people that will bring about the Messiah when we can't obey you? And God does things by by giving uh, judges, then, then kings, and also prophets. He's trying to direct his people back, but there's agony in the Old Testament. And it's so represented in the Psalms that we read. God, how long? And can we ever be a people that will trust you? So this woman represents Israel's journey into bringing the Messiah. 
to solve their sinful plight. And then we're introduced to the dragon, another sign. This, again, I think has a threefold response, just like the, the, the woman has Israel, Mary, and the church. I think the dragon represents Israel's enemies, all the foreign powers. Uh, the beast comes from the sea, and we see in next chapter, we'll look at that. The beast comes from the sea, and Israel always considered the monsters from the sea as their enemies, their foreign powers that were always looking to take them out. And Israel has always had countries looking to annihilate them, even today. Part of the peace agreement breakdown in the Middle East is because Israel always comes to the table saying, we're ready to talk. It's the nations around them that say, we don't want to talk. We want you annihilated. Always has enemies. But I think another sign is, remember the dragon is waiting for this baby to be born? I think this is physically Herod, a representation of Herod, who wants to take out uh, Jesus when he's born. And we are told uh, in the next section that this dragon is Satan himself, the deceiver, the accuser, the accuser of the brethren. So this is a, a multifaceted dragon, but ultimately, I think Satan is behind all those other things. So that's why the, the dragon is Satan. And he's red. Red, the color of blood. I think that's why we see pictures of Satan as kind of dragon-ish. Where the picture came from, I'm not sure. But, but he's red. He's always got those red clothes on because it's the color of murder and death, blood, and a threat to those that he stands over. Seven heads. The heads represent authority. And there's seven of them, meaning that the seven, the seven and ten, both those numbers represent completeness in Revelation. So he has complete authority. But this could mean there are many different variations of this authority on the earth. Ten horns, complete strength. And the ten hordes, remember, each, there might be a head that has one horn. There might be a head of that dragon that has two horns. So there's varying degrees of what that strength and that power will be. And seven diadems, I think representing beauty, complete beauty, complete wealth. Now, when we think about these things, authority, strength, and beauty, wealth, these are the enemy's tactics. He cloaks his deception in all of these things, right? He cloaks his persecution in authority, cloaks his, his persecution in strength. He cloaks his seduction within the desire for wealth and the desire for beauty. So these are tactics of Satan himself. And then we're told that he sweeps a third of the heavens with his tail. That's a really big tail. But it's actually hard to know what exactly this means. Uh, do, the, do the stars represent nations and kings? that he's using to, uh, to be the enemy of God's people? Or could it represent fallen angels? That when Satan fell, he took a third of the heavens with him. I think it represents the fallen angels who are now demons with him. He waits to devour the woman's baby. Remember again, we see this with Pharaoh. We see this with Herod. And I think we have seen this with abortion, in the church age, our, our context, where Satan has used a very faulty mindset and lies, lies. Also another thing, we need to be able to love on ladies who have had an abortion. 
Because I've talked to some who have, and they, it, it changes their lives. A baby changes everybody's life. And the loss of that baby, even a miscarriage, you know, that changes things. It just makes us feel differently about life. So we need love. We need to love everybody. And be a place of healing. We're a hospital. We want to be a place of healing. So she delivers this baby, and it's a male child. And the child, we're told, is not a sign. The, the woman is a sign, and the dragon is a sign, but the child's not a sign because the dragon is Jesus. The dragon, no, no, no. The child is Jesus. Glad I self-corrected on that. Thank you, Lord. The child is not a sign. He's real, and he's Jesus. And we have Psalm 2 that lets us know again. Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That break is a rule. Rule over them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is Jesus. Messianic psalm. Here's what's coming. And God's saying, this is the child that was born. It's Jesus, and he has all authority. But then we see this, this real quick. She gave birth to the male child, verse 5, who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Very quick, right? I think he was caught up to God. This condenses his life, his life, birth, and, and from birth to ascension. He was there, and then he was caught up to God, his ascension. But then the woman responds by going into the wilderness. The woman, I think, is the church here. This is, not, this is not Israel. It's a picture, sort of. It's borrowing the picture from Israel going into the wilderness. But I think this is saying that the church is in a wilderness experience as well. And here's why I think that. Uh, the wilderness experience, look, nourished for 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. That's also the equivalent of time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. That this is, remember last week we looked at, this is the, the age of the church where we are spreading the gospel. Jesus' ministry was 42 months. Jesus' ministry can be estimated in that way as 1,260 days. That's the church is to minister with that overarching theme, spreading the gospel. The ministry of the gospel will be accomplished. The proclamation of the gospel happens in the wilderness. And for all of us, that wilderness, just like in, in the Old Testament for Israel, the wilderness was a place of provision where God supplied their need, but it was also a crucible for faith, where faith was refined. Don't we live that life? We depend on God's his provision for us all the time, but we live in a crucible where our faith is being refined as we are sojourners now on this earth, waiting for our new exodus from this earth into the, the new promised land of the glory of a new heaven and a new earth. So those are the, the signs there. Uh, I think that we have this multifaceted approach to what they represent. Uh, we know what the child is. But now the second, second paragraph in this uh, chapter, I think, is revealing a certain salvation where there's a cosmic struggle now for God's people, there's a certain salvation. And we're told war is in heaven. I think this is a, a previous thing that uh, John is seeing. But Michael now is on the scene. We're introduced to Michael, the archangel, in Daniel chapter 10. And we're told this, 
The angels win. The dragon is defeated. Thrown down, I think, happens six times in this one little paragraph. He is thrown down. That's what we, we have to live as if he's thrown down, not uh, in our, our ways of giving into his thoughts, exalting him because we give into his thoughts. No, he is thrown down. The dragon is defeated. And how is the dragon defeated? Through the death of Jesus. See, this is one of the mysteries of the gospel. When it looks like Satan wins, God turns around to his defeat. Because it's through weakness and humility that Jesus wins. Everybody's looking for something strong to win, and Satan comes on the scene, and he wants to be the strong one, the powerful one, and get everybody to pay attention to that. But God says, if you're going to be powerful, you're going to lose. If you're humble, you'll win. It's a paradox that we see all over the scriptures. Satan boasts of his strength and his pride, and he loses. But here is, for us, church, in our wilderness experience, the way to victory is through weakness. Remember 2 Corinthians 12, Paul saying that. I'll boast in my weaknesses, but there's when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And he has thrown down the dragon that is Satan, this ancient serpent. Uh, This reveals that Satan has been the enemy in this cosmic battle since the very beginning when he deceived Eve and played into Adam's pride. That you can be your own God. It's the same exact war that's been happening since we have been on this, since uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, when God introduces that cosmic battle. But we learn from Isaiah 14 something about Satan's pride. And that's why he goes to this ancient serpent language. Prophet Isaiah records, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. It's exactly the temptation that was presented before Adam. And Adam ate that fruit. He said, no, I don't want to be gods. I want to be God. And I want God to obey me. Now, he is thrown down from heaven. When did this occur? Is confusing. Did this, is, this a, a, is this something that he was thrown down originally? When, when God cursed the serpent, he's thrown down? I think probably this thrown down is when Jesus ascended to heaven. And we see, I think Daniel sees in Daniel Daniel chapter 7, he sees this cosmic reality happening before it does as as something that will happen in the future. But I think when Jesus ascends, uh, he sits on his throne, and I think that's when the devil is thrown down. And it means, we don't know what this looks like or how it happened, but it means that Maybe Satan and his demons had some ability to be in heaven before this time. And remember Job, when it was the time when the sons, uh, the sons of God, I think it says, Job chapter one, present themselves before God. Satan was there in God's presence. I don't know how that would work. We're not given instruction on that. But at some point, Satan was allowed to be there and he was thrown down. I think that was with the ascension. He is thrown down. 
he may have he may have also been judged in phases before creation when he looks at himself and looks at his own pride and convinces a third of the heavens there's a, a judgment ha- that happens to him there I think there's a judgment with the resurrection and the ascension. Now the the lake of fire awaits him. But here's the most important point. He is thrown down and he is defeated along with his demons. He is done. I think Jesus said, and he was indicating through the ministry. Remember when he sends out the 72 in Luke chapter 10? Um, he sends them out to minister and he gives them authority. He gives them power. They come back saying, even the demons were subject to us in your name. This was awesome. And this is what Jesus says. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So I think Jesus is telling them this. I think he was looking forward to the, his ascension when Satan would be thrown down with his angels in a, a, a judgment, another judgment phase. But here's what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I love how Jesus makes the point of making our gaze on heaven, not the things around us. Look what I can do. This is pretty cool. Now he says, recognize where you're going. See, Satan is thrown down from heaven and we are enrolled in heaven. And that is our peace and our security. And now I love This sentence, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. That's what we live in right now, church, the kingdom of God. We are reconciled to God. So his presence is always with us. And no matter how Satan in his devious schemes tries to convince us that we're not good enough to be in his presence or be his child, we look at him and say, get out of here. Because this tells me I'm reconciled and his presence is always with me. And we have authority in Christ. Because of the rights that we have brought on by justification by faith. I believe Christ died in my place. I bring nothing to him that is good to... to, to satisfy his judgment toward my sins. No, I simply trust Jesus did it all. And I I trust him with everything that I am. We are justified. Therefore, we have his authority and his authority over the spiritual, the, the demonic spiritual realm. We now have power over Satan. We can conquer. We can conquer his accusations of shame. Because all of us, all of us hear the devil's voice. It sounds like our voice. All of us hear the devil's voice saying, you are nothing. You are, maybe it's the voice of a parent. Maybe it's the voice of a coach, teacher. Maybe it's the voice of just something that happened where you were victimized. We all, we all need healing from those instances of shame that the devil keeps on bringing to us, keeps on reminding us of, keeps on trying to hold over our heads. That's why we say we want to be a place of healing because everyone, we, we, oftentimes we think that we've dealt with it. It just means we've ignored it until something happens and the enemy has that same voice that comes back and we're sunk. We need to help one another Uh, conquer through the healing 
that Jesus has won for us. But listen, we conquer through selfless sacrifice. If Jesus conquered Satan through his weakness and humility, that's our battle plan as well. We, we trust him and we conquer through selfless sacrifice. The sacrifice that we see in Jesus, in his obedience to the Father, we replicate that. We replicate it through faithful living. God, I'm trusting you. I'm not trying to be perfectly obedient. I want to be faithful so I can be obedient. And God, you will do a perfect thing. So we faithful, with our, our lives that are shining faithfully, we will see the light of Christ in this dark generation. And we will see it at all times. And this Church, this is our reason for rejoicing. No matter what the battle that is raging over our lives right now, we've won. And we've won because we, we are the kingdom of God in his presence. We stand and sit with him in his seat of authority on his throne. And we have power over the devil. We've got to live like it. Amen. Get behind me. I'm trying to figure that out too. But this is a promise. This is our rejoicing. And this is why we keep getting up. The righteous fall seven times. And what do they do? Rise again. Jesus is with us all the time. In the last paragraph, we see a complete safety. Where this cosmic struggle is occurring, there is a certain salvation that we depend on in order for us to experience this complete safety in Christ. First thing we see in verse 13 is this is an angry dragon. This is a South Pole dragon. Very angry. If you got my ALF reference there, congratulations. But this, his time is short, and he, he is livid. And he's mad. He's angry at God for throwing him out of heaven. He doesn't like the fact he doesn't have the same access before the throne of God. He's angry. His power is limited. His authority is an illusion, and he thinks he's going to fix it himself. So he's going after Christians. He's going after the woman who gives birth. So that woman is signifying, but also her offspring. He's saying, oh, I'm going to keep on going after this, this embodiment of the gospel truth. I'm going to go after it. I'm going to go after it. And I'm not going to stop. And I, am I will be a terror. But we see now this woman is flying. Where the, the, the dragon is angry, this woman now has wings to fly. The church has that moment of safety. And we see this, this, this metaphor clearly in Isaiah 40. When Isaiah, God's making this promise to his people to rebuild. They're in exile, they'll be in exile, but God will bring them back in safety. Well, it's a promise for us to know that we are being held safely until Jesus returns. Isaiah 40, have you not known have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Church, we have eagle's wings that God provides for us for safety. Now, this safety is rescue sometimes, but ultimately it's a, it's a safety that is a refuge to God. 
God in, he meets us in our moment in the crucible of faith. He meets us and provides these wings to do what? To get him right back, get us right back to his presence. He's getting us back to his presence to remind us of his love. But we see now the serpent, this ancient serpent, is spewing things. See, she, in verse, uh, verse 14, the middle of verse 14, she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, away to the place where she'll be nourished for time, times, half a time. I think it's another reference to the ministry of the church between Jesus' ascension and his return. Now, verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. I think the, the enemy continues to attack the church and Christians to nullify our testimony and our witness for Christ. And the best way to nullify us is to lull us to spiritual sleep so we don't pursue the Lord with everything that we are. And this flood that comes out of his mouth, it could be the accusations and the guilt that hold us down when we failed. Or it simply could be the lies and deceptions that keep getting us off track. The things that we keep pursuing and settling for rather than going hard after God. And then we say, there's this, the earth opens up and swallows this water. I think this just points to a miraculous protection. That God protects his church. And he will protect his church sometimes in physical measure. When the earth comes to the aid of believers to protect them from the flood of Satan's mouth. But listen... Verse 16, the earth came to the help of the woman. The woman opened its, uh, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. The war still rages. The dragon will go after those who love God, those who keep his commandments. That's not that's talking about, hey, uh, you love rules. You're doing well. No, he, he goes after those who love God and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's going after those who love God and trust Jesus. So if he goes after those who keep the commandments, what's he going to do? Well, let me give you more commandments to think you're, you're achieving or keeping your salvation. And maybe you'll be accepted through your performance. Sows his lies into there. If he goes after those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, he might just try to give them a different Jesus. Or try to scare them so hard through persecution that they'll abandon their Jesus. But within our context, I think the enemy's lies are trying to give us a different Jesus. A Jesus that agrees with us all the time. Now, that's not the Jesus that we serve. He is the king. And we, we don't try to make God form to our image and our likeness. We shine with the image of Jesus and the mind of Christ. But there's something interesting, and we open this up a little more as we look into chapter 13. The, the last sentence, and he stood on the sand of the sea. The dragon is standing on the sand of the sea. So where we are, remember the, the, the image that Jesus taught in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. So our response 
from this message is build on the right foundation. Because listen, the dragon with all of his deception, he's on, he's on the sand. Satan's on the sand. He's shifty. And he promises security, but it never comes through. He promises wealth and beauty and authority and strength, but it never fulfills because he doesn't have what fulfills our longing. Only God does. So here, here's the response today for us. Stand on the rock. Because we are the kingdom of God with the authority of Christ and power to conquer. Power to live victoriously. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for taking uh, hefty visions and giving understanding. Lord, I thank you that what we want to do is simply be obedient to the faithful witness of Christ. So may we, please God, be found to be those who keep the commandments of God because we love you. And we want to continue experiencing your presence. And may we hold powerfully and faithfully to the testimony of Jesus, trusting him for, any, for everything in our lives. God, we, we want you. We need you. We pray for your goodness to be experienced in our lives as we stand on the rock of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, let's remind ourselves, church, we stand on the rock and then we obey. And when Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. God bless you.